Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Coming up, deep fake videos. They're pushing the boundaries. Have they become just too realistic? Plus, vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel on the vaccine rollout here in Ontario. And is Ontario officially in the third wave of the pandemic? All of that coming up here in the podcast. Okay, there is a new concern today over so-called deep fake videos. I want to talk a bit about this off the top this afternoon, because just how far they have gone and how far they have come. Some people believe that these deep fakes have now pushed the boundaries to being just as good as the real thing. And for more on this, we're joined now by our cybersecurity expert, David Shipley. He joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. David, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, was a recent uh, viral video of a supposed Tom Cruise that has kind of reignited concern here over deep fakes. Are these deep fakes, uh, I mean, they're getting pretty real, aren't they? They are getting pretty real, and the ability to create these is becoming a commodity. And so, you know, it was a professional that did the Tom Cruise videos, and the quality shows but even everyday folks are engaging in using this artificial intelligence technology to create fake photos and videos that are increasingly hard to tell from reality. That was my very next question. Just how difficult or more to the point easy has it become for just anyone to create a realistic deep fake? Well, I think the, the bellwether for that was hit this week when we learned that a uh, U.S. mother of a uh, cheerleader decided to create deepfake photos of other girls on the cheerleading squad smoking naked or engaged in other embarrassing activities to try and get them kicked off of the uh, cheerleading squad. So when, when the cheer moms are using deepfakes to cyberbully and uh, harass and intimidate, it's, uh, it's pretty mainstream. And this seems obvious, but uh, what are the concerns when it comes to these deepfake videos and the fact that they're getting so realistic? Well, the biggest single concern is how they're being used to target women in particular. And so over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen statistics that show 90% plus of deepfake videos being created right now are pornographic in nature. And in fact, some really interesting research in uh, October 2020 showed that uh, of the men primarily who are engaged in doing this disgusting activity of creating non-consensual fake sexual imagery, their preference, about 63% of them, are targeting people they know in real life. Um, And there was an example on Telegram of an app where you could take a photo you got from social media or took uh, with your camera of someone in public, send it to this artificial intelligence, and it would take its best guess of what that person would look like naked, generating a pornographic image of that individual. And we're talking, obviously, you know, reputational uh, damage here, also uh, mental health concerns got to be first and foremost amongst those who have been targeted. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this is just the perpetuation, the acceleration of um, the dangerous trend of uh, non-consensual sexual exploitation, primarily of women, primarily by men. Um, And, of course, it's also... Uh, creating a new whole wave of child sexual exploitation images as well. So it's not just adults that are being targeted by this, it's also children. And our laws are not caught up to the reality of artificial intelligence and fake images. We just were not there and the consequences are piling up. And it seems like every time we talk, the law is always at least a step, if not several, behind when it comes to what's happening uh, online and with technology in general. So 
what, if anything, can be done about this, a short-term or, or long-term? I mean, can this sort of thing, can these deep fakes, can they be regulated? Well, I think, um, I think we have to have conversations about the proliferation of this technology. Um, AI is a genie in the bottle or Pandora's box, another analogy, that we've unleashed without considering all the consequences. Um, I don't think we can roll back the tech now for deep fakes. It's so uh, mainstream and so trivial. You can use just a standard Dell laptop and it can be used to train and build these kind of models. So I don't think there's any um, closing the box to, to put this back in. I do think we need to have specific criminal code charges related to individuals that, that make this technology available, that uh, profit from it, and those that engage in using it, and then further victimize individuals. I think we need to address this head on and, and send a clear denunciative message um, from the criminal justice system to say, if you do this, you will go to jail. Yeah. How tough is it to track down the perpetrators, though, those that are behind these uh, deep fake videos? Well, it depends on the level of effort that we're willing to put in as a society to cracking down on this. The, the myth of anonymity on the Internet is still pretty powerful, but it's not true. Everything can be tracked. It just depends the amount of effort that we want to put into it. And uh, I think the the large number of these cases could actually be investigated and resolved, particularly with the reality being um, they may be per perpetrated by people that are known to the victim. Um, and so I think we need to build a new generation of police officers that have these technology skills. These aren't cops that need to carry guns anymore and work the streets. These are cops that need to work the keyboard and uh, help fight this new kind of awful crime. Yeah, and just finally, I wanted to touch on this with you, David. In an era where we're concerned about uh, the proliferation of misinformation on the Internet, it seems as if uh, deepfakes can perhaps take that to a whole nother level. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the ability to have politicians say uh, things they never said, or even worse, politicians who are genuinely caught saying some awful or doing some awful things can then turn around and say, oh, don't believe that. That was a deepfake. Um, so it's a double-edged sword, and you know, never in our society has credible, legitimate um, news reporting ever been needed more um, to combat this um, scourge. And we need to also hold, hold social media companies accountable for hosting this content, particularly once it's immediately um, seen to be fake and harmful, um, getting rid of it and making sure it doesn't happen again. You bet. An important discussion. David Shipley, appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks as always. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. There's cybersecurity expert David Shipley. Okay. We've got not one, not two, but three mass immunization clinics opening in Toronto today. And joining us now, vaccine researcher, our friend Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me back. All right. We want to take a look at uh, vaccines and the vaccination and rollout from a bit of a different perspective with you this afternoon, because not only are you a vaccine researcher, but you also have a general practice and you're getting a lot of questions from patients. So we wanted to go over some of those that uh, you're hearing a little more often, including I don't have a computer. So now what? What can I do to get registered for the vaccine? It is quite incredible. People are floundering and asking if they can't register what's going to happen. And I think it's, this is one of these situations where all hands get on deck. So we are offering to register them through, and the, the website is Ontario.ca slash book vaccine. 
so we can help them. But there's also a telephone number people can call, and that's 1-888-999-6488. 1-888-999-6488. So we're trying to fill in those gaps where we can. You know, the difficulty is, what do you do with somebody who has a grandmother who's bedridden at home? And fortunately, Ontario health teams are trying to step up to that plate, allowing some home visits. So hopefully we'll see more of those, but I don't think we have quite enough of them just yet for those who are truly homebound. Okay, you're also getting a lot of questions about signing up uh, for the vaccine. How do I sign up? Uh, Is it complicated? Is it hard to do? I am so thrilled with what's happened because we Ontario has a central website that can be used. And I'm going to say that website a second time and slowly. It's Ontario.ca forward slash book vaccine. So really simple, Ontario.ca forward slash book vaccine. And what's being offered? So we've got the mass vaccination clinics. We've got vaccines being given in hospitals, a limited number being given in pharmacies. And understand that Ontario is actually doing quite well when it comes to vaccinations at this point. And we are using 80% of what's been received, and it's it's a very significant number and 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 a successful rollout, I would suggest. You know, the big concerns is what people are hearing in the news. So, Jeff, you've heard about this too, right? This issue around blood clots. Yeah, and the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine? Yeah, the AstraZeneca vaccine. But I want to take a hard look at the numbers. So if you consider that so far in Europe, they have identified 15 cases of deep vein thrombosis. That's where a blood clot blocks one of the major veins in the leg. And 22 cases of pulmonary embolus. And that's potentially life-threatening. It's a very dangerous clot. But you have to ask yourself, how many patients was that among. So 17 million vaccines were given to have 37 individuals with these blood clots. So that's not even, that doesn't even come close to what we would expect in the background radiation, if you know what I mean. So even without the vaccines, we are going to see those blood clots. And that's why the World Health Organization and the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, that's our federal body here in Canada, has said, ho, 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 wait, 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 wait. We can give this, and we can give it safely. And moreover, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations has also pulled back on the recommendation that the AstraZeneca vaccine be given only to those who are 60 to 64 years of age. They're now saying, wait a second, We made a mistake. We can see the world data, and the world data is very robust in terms of almost eliminating the possibility of dying from the disease and greatly reducing the number of hospitalizations and severe cases of COVID-19. Okay, but as you are uh, well aware, I mean, there is a lot of concern amongst people when it comes to AstraZeneca because of all of the uh, mixed news and messaging that we're getting from health officials in Canada and what we're seeing in other countries around the world. Are you concerned that we're not getting the message out when it comes to AstraZeneca? And is that contributing, do you think, or could it contribute to vaccine hesitancy? And what would you say to those that say, I just don't trust the AstraZeneca vaccine? You know, I I have to hold hands with that because I I tell you, there are a lot of people who are really worried about, you know, what is going to happen. 
But when you take a hard look at the data, the data speaks for itself. Of 17 million vaccines, we expect that people with and without the vaccine are going to have blood clots. So this does not represent a significant signal. So those countries are taking, you know, they want to take a look. We're talking about many of the countries in Western Europe, France, Spain, Ireland, Germany, Italy. The rollout has basically ground to a standstill when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine. They want to ensure that that doesn't represent any more of a signal. But meanwhile, we're seeing the World Health Organization, our body here, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization saying, and even the European Medical Authority itself has now said, no, that is not a significant signal. But it's like any other medical decision. You know, we have to put things on the proverbial scales of justice. What happens if I get the vaccine versus what are my risks without getting the vaccine? And we know the risks of COVID-19 are very significant. So 40% of people won't have symptoms, but 10% of people wind up in hospital. And of those, many will die from the disease. And I'm not even talking about the potential for long-term harm, you know, the long haulers, nor have I mentioned the fact that many people, even when they do get out of hospital, go on to have very significant problems after that. So I get that the vaccine isn't perfect, Overall, it gives a 62% reduction in symptomatic COVID-19. And okay. we're, we're still left, like with the other vaccines, with questions. How long will the immunity last? We don't even know. Does it reduce transmission? In other words, after I get vaccinated, it is, is it possible that I could still have the virus in my nose and be transmitting it to other people? And we, we actually don't know the answers to these questions. They are critical questions. Preliminary data from Israel would suggest that it's possible that it is reducing transmission, but it's, it's an imperfectly moving part. We have to wait till we have better data in. Okay, so but the, the, eat the humble pie on this. Yeah, well, the data we do have, as you mentioned, suggests the AstraZeneca vaccine only has an efficacy of 62%. Well, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, well over 90%. So are you hearing from patients, and what are you uh, telling them when they say, listen, I'm thinking about waiting until I have uh, my choice. Why should I go for a less effective vaccine? I am hearing so much of that. And, you know, I think it's the problem is this, is that it's a, it's a little bit simplistic to say the Pfizer is 94, 95%, the Moderna, I'm going to go for one of those higher numbers. That sounds exciting, but the problem is we have no head-to-head -head trials. So you cannot actually compare what was found with the AstraZeneca trial versus, say, the messenger RNA, Pfizer, Moderna trials. They're all separate trials, the Johnson & Johnson trial. They were done in separate countries, in different seasons, with different research protocols in the presence of different amounts of variance of concern. So that's the problem. They, one does not compare to the others. There are too many things that confound that kind of a direct comparison. And that's hugely problematic because people, first of all, they don't have a choice. There is no choice. Not at present. And I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, where is the greater risk? Is the greater risk in getting vaccinated? And we know the risks of the vaccination is actually very minimal. There's minor redness and soreness at the injection site. Maybe up to about half of individuals can get minor flu-like reactions, including fever, muscle aches, joint aches. That's very common after getting the vaccine. Fatigue. But essentially, 
people feel well. They're minor, they're minor side effects. They're not major ones. And when you look at the risks and harms of you know, COVID-19, you're talking about very significant dangers. And then on top of it, I ask you, what are we going to do with these emerging variants of concern? Because that's a big problem as well. Absolutely, yes. i got to leave it there for now, Dr. Gorfinkel. Appreciate the time and the information as always. Thanks so much. Many thanks, Jeff. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Stay well. There's a vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, with us on this Wednesday. You know what? I love the fact we're playing music uh, once again because it's reminding me of all of these times in my life and uh, stories. And that's what music does, right? It just takes you back to a, a certain time. Playing Lenny here, Lenny uh, Kravitz. Are you going to go my way? Remember back in the 90s when uh, a certain beer company uh, did those blind dates? Remember that where they had like a, uh, nobody knew who it was, but it was a small club and you had to get a pass to get in. And then uh, all of a sudden, Lenny Kravitz is on stage in front of like two or 300 people. So I was uh, with the uh, rock station in uh, London at the time, uh, FM 96, and uh, we even had no idea who it was until like an hour before the show. That's how hush hush they uh, kept this. But it was uh, right when Are You Going to Go My Way? It just hit the charts. Lenny was just as big as big could be. And uh, me and my partner at the time, uh, Pete, we were getting set to go out on stage. You know, do that to radio station thing and uh, welcome everybody. Like the station. Yeah, all yeah. that stuff, right? Uh, anyways, I was this close. I wasn't paying attention. I was like this close to knocking over all of Lenny Kravitz's guitars. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it didn't happen, Jeff. Oh, that would have been disastrous. Could you imagine? <laughs> he would have tossed you out himself. Sorry, uh, show's canceled. <laughs> Because the DJ tripped over all of Lenny's guitars, and he's got no guitars anymore. Does anybody got one at their uh, house they could bring, maybe? Uh, just run back to the house and get it? <laughs> but doesn't he have any backups, or he just brings out everything? Well, it's like this whole monster row of guitars. It's like, because, what, five or six? Oh, anyway, I'm going to say maybe close to a dozen. Oy. We're, huh. we're in this rack, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of musicians. Uh, I mean, if you watch a concert, I mean, there's some guitarists. They change guitars, it seems like, every song, right? Mm. Yeah. Crazy. So anyways, glad we're, uh, you know, playing some music and bringing back some uh, memories, the good and the bad. I'm also very glad you didn't do it. Yeah. You and me both to this day. And it's like 25 years later. <laughs> oh, big shout out, by the way, uh, this afternoon to this uh, runner in Quebec who has set a, a Guinness uh, record. Uh, Mary, let me ask you, by the way, I don't know this. Uh, are you a runner? Are you a, you a jogger at all? I'm not a big jogger, no. I mean, I stay active and fit and healthy, but I'm not really a jogger. How about you? No, and I'm particularly not a barefoot runner. And that's right? why this uh, gentleman from Quebec, I mean, these photos are just amazing. He is now in the Guinness Book of World Records for the uh, fastest half marathon run barefoot, which is yeah. tough enough, but on ice or snow. I mean, could you imagine? Crazy. No, I can't. I, I can't imagine. And, you know, I, I'm looking at some of these pictures and the bottom of his feet. You can only imagine, right? That guy needs a pumice bad. Like, <laughs> feet are in bad shape. Yeah, or, or does he? I don't know. Would it naturally exfoliate your feet as you ran? I don't know. I don't know, but he's saving a lot of money, you know, with running shoes being like 100 bucks a pop. Wow, very frugal. Yeah, I, I, I think sure. actually I would uh, spend the uh, 100 or 200 bucks for good runners at this point. Yeah, because he was saying, and I didn't think about this until I uh, read the interview with him. I mean, when you're running on snow and ice, 
first of all, you've got very little traction with, with bare feet. And then occasionally, uh, apparently, uh, you, you can also stick to the ice as well, right? So right. he'd be running along and be like, no. Not going anywhere. <laughs> Stuck. Somebody get the, get the hot water and peel me off here. Yeah, listen, I'm not a huge runner myself, but uh, when I do run, I run with running shoes. Thank Me you. Too. Yes. Jeff, Jeff MacArthur. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out in full support of running <laughs> shoes for joggers. Okay, are we or aren't we in a third wave? That seems to be the big question uh, this week. So what exactly are the stats telling us? Let's ask Scott Kaloy, the Chief of Operations for York Region's COVID Emergency Response, and he joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Hey there, Scott. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm well, thanks, and uh, thanks for being here. So first off, just uh, what exactly are the numbers telling us? Can you break this down for us? Uh, can we tell whether or not we are indeed in the midst of a third wave? Yeah, so in your region, we monitor this on a daily basis to get a sense of what, where our numbers are headed and where they've come from. And so we do some day, see some day-over-day fluctuation, which we expect. Uh, but we haven't seen anything like we were seeing in previous waves with respect to hospitalizations and deaths, um, indicating that we'd be approaching that third wave at this point. So uh, we're cautiously optimistic right now, hoping that the numbers continue to flatline and stabilize a bit um, and get over these little last few days where we've had some higher case counts. Um, but at this point, we're, we're not fully on board with the, the notion that we're headed in the third wave direction yet. Okay, what is it that you specifically look at? We've had this debate uh, the last couple of days when it comes to uh, determining the third wave. Is it just caseload? Is it hospitalizations? Is it uh, ICU rates? Uh, what are you particularly looking at? Yeah, it's a combination of all those. We look at our deaths. Um, we look at our hospitalizations, including both hospitalized and non, uh, and individuals that are in the ICU as well as not in the ICU. We also look at our positivity um, with our lab tests that have been conducted. And then we look at how the overall uh, shape of our curve is looking with respect to new infections that are being reported. And we use these all in combination to really make a determination as to whether or not we see um, ourselves entering a third wave. And now that we've got a vaccine uh, available and multiple vaccines, we also look at the impact of our immunization coverage um, among certain priority populations to really help assess um, whether or not we're headed in that direction. I was going to ask you about the uh, vaccines. If we were, let's say, in a third wave or at the beginning of a, a third wave, do we necessarily need to in certain areas? I mean, uh, here in Toronto, uh, we're still uh, in a gray lockdown uh, situation, but in other uh, regions, would they need to go back into a uh, lockdown? Or do you think the uh, vaccine uh, changes the equation when it comes to uh, how we deal with a third wave, if indeed uh, we are in one? Yeah, absolutely. The vaccine is, makes that game changer for us and really helps um, avoid the need for any of those harsher lockdowns. Uh, we know that our most vulnerable populations living in long-term care homes, retirement homes, as well as the frontline healthcare providers um, helping those individuals, they've all been offered the vaccine. Uh, and also in York Region, for example, we've got nearly 70% of our you know, residents that are aged 80 years and older vaccinated as well. So that's about 31,000 people. And we also know we've got about 70% of our healthcare workers in the highest and very high priority groups um, immunized as well. So the lockdowns that we were previously seeing um, were in part and parcel to help protect those individuals. And so by having these individuals vaccinated and protected, we're hopeful that there, there isn't a need for any further re restrictions or lockdowns. All right. And along those lines, where are you right now in York region and where is it uh, you hope to go in the uh, weeks to come uh, when it comes to uh, limitations and regulations? 
Yeah, so we've been monitoring the, the indicators very closely. Um, a few days ago or last week, we we're looking to see where we were with respect to orange, uh, recognizing that there is the opportunity if the case counts were low enough. Uh, right now, we're going through a little bit of bumpy water so we can get a sense of um, we'll keep an eye on these. And we also know that with some religious events coming up, Passover's coming, Easter's coming, as well as the new April break uh, for schools. So we'll continue to monitor it and likely make a decision um, once we've reached past those events, knowing that there could be a possibility for people to gather during those timeframes and then seeing how the numbers play out from there. Okay, so is it unlikely we'll see a loosening of restrictions there in York until uh, those events uh, pass? Yeah, that's, that's where our discussions are headed towards right now, is waiting to see once we've had those those events where we could possibly see gatherings. And we know that as people gather within their homes or with others, um, they often get a little bit loose with the public health measures. And so it's an opportunity to wait and see and how, how the numbers transpire over those those events. Here in Toronto, of course, we've got three mass immunization clinics uh, open for business starting today. Uh, tell us about York Region, what's going on there when it comes to the vaccine and the rollout. Yeah, so right now, as I mentioned, we've um, we've reached out to our very high and our highest priority healthcare workers, as well as our individuals 80 and older, as well as all those living in long-term care and retirement homes. And we have six data clinics that are operational right now in Vaughan, Markham, Georgina, um, Newmarket, and Sound of Richmond Hill, or City of Richmond Hill, sorry. And then we're looking to open further clinics as our vaccine supply increases. And this could include an additional community center in Markham, as well as our Wonderland location at the end of March or early April. And so as we get more and more vaccine available, we'll then be able to look into immunizing uh, younger and younger age cohorts. So moving next into the 75 to 79 year olds um, so that we can get those individuals vaccinated and working towards um, more and more of the, the vulnerable populations as quickly as we can. Yeah, just finally, Scott, are you pleased, relatively pleased, where you're at there in uh, York region right now? I mean, uh, obviously, we're all hoping for uh, more vaccines uh, sooner, but uh, knowing what we know about the supply and what is ahead, particularly with Pfizer and those uh, million doses arriving each and every week for the next uh, little while, are you happy where you're at and where you're headed to? Absolutely. I think having 70% of our population age 80 and older, that gives those individuals that peace of mind that they're protected and they're able to see their loved ones again when, when we see restrictions lifted and not having to live in the fear of getting COVID. And I think that's something that everyone should be looking forward to is having their opportunity to get vaccinated and uh, rolling up their sleeves, getting the vaccine so that everyone can help keep one another safe and move one step closer to, to back to normal that we had prior to the pandemic. Absolutely. Scott Chalua, Chief of Operations for York Region's COVID Emergency Response. Scott, thanks for the update and the time this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You as well.